We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good morning. Welcome to our sunrise service this morning. It's good to see you. We're all back here. We were here Friday evening, and now we're back yet again to worship together our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you would please join me in prayer as we open our service this morning. Heavenly Father, we gratefully and joyfully proclaim that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed, truly raised from the dead. The scripture tells us over and over again that you raised him from the dead and that he has the keys of death and of Hades. He has the authority over life. He is the author of life, the creator of all things, our Lord Jesus Christ. We worship him this morning. How we thank you for this great truth. The events of Friday, those many years ago, reminded us on our Friday, two days back, of the gloomy situation that the disciples faced as they wondered and and misunderstood about what was happening but we are grateful that we can fully understand with the help of all the New Testament revelation. We give you that glory that you deserve. Help us to sing and as we read and pray and give the word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Just now we'll ask uh, Darius to come and read Mark 16, 1 through 8. Why don't I suggest you come on up here so you can be heard by those on the live stream. Yeah, you don't. I don't mind at all. That would be fine. Let me... Uh, let me quickly find it for you here. Mark 16, 1 through 8. Mark 16, 1 through 8, verse 1. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said amongst themselves, Who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell the disciples, his disciples rather, and Peter, that he has gone before you into Galilee. There you will see him, as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thank you, Darius. All right. I'd like to uh, see if there's some other brave volunteer who will read the portion of Scripture for us in Luke 24, 1 through 12. Luke 24, 1 through 12. Who's going to offer to do that? 
Now the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shiny garments. And as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to be like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen clothes lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. All right, and then John chapter 20, uh, verses 1 through 18. John 20, 1 through 18. Is there anyone who would like to read that portion for us? All right, there being no volunteers forthcoming. Then I will take up that role. John chapter 20. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. And he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around his head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. And the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. That's a funny thing, isn't it, there, that they did not know the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. They kind of knew it, but they didn't really know it. Have you ever experienced yourself in that state where you're kind of like, yeah, sort of, I heard that before, but now it's like, ding, 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 now I really get it. That's what was beginning to happen to them. Verse 11, but Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping, and as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Well, wrong, wrong supposition, isn't it? They took him away. Somebody took him away. Now, when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
She, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say teacher. It's like rabbi. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. John 20, 1 through 18. May God bless that reading of his word this morning. I uh, wanted to offer a short time for anyone who had a testimony today. Uh, Just a word of thanks for the Lord, uh, something about the resurrection, something of that nature. If anyone would like to make testimony that way, I can open the floor for that opportunity. No? Steve, you're right there where you're at. You can say something, brother. Steve is just recounting the thrill of the resurrection that Christ died and rose again for him and for us. Think of the power of that as well. And if you know Steve's line of work, he sees the other side of that all the time. And it's going to take tremendous power to resurrect all these people from the graves. But God has it without any trouble at all. Becky, you have something. Still is. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, we will be with him, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes. Ah, she's. You're getting getting more sisters here. Yeah, that's cool. That's really good, brothers and sisters in the Lord. We have a big family, don't we? Yeah, oh, how it would be such a blessing for you all to meet uh, some of your family in other countries in the world. I have had that privilege, and it's, uh, it is an amazing privilege. You'll have it someday from every tribe and tongue and kindred and nation on the face of the earth. Anybody else? Yes, Didi.
shares about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the encouragement of the rapture and the resurrection with her mother's home going five and a half years ago is that right something like that yeah that's not doesn't seem like it's that long but it is that long amen all right well let's turn our bibles to Romans 1 please Romans chapter 1 Romans chapter 1, and we're going to look at verses 3 to 4, but I'll start in verse 1 just so we have a little context. The title of our message this morning is, By the Resurrection from the Dead. By the Resurrection from the Dead. And uh, the Bible says here in Romans 1, Paul, and then it describes Paul, he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God. Verse 2, which he promised before through his prophets, in the Holy Scriptures, concerning, here it is, here's what the gospel is all about, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, and then let me translate it this way, who became of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and was distinguished as the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And then I will seem to repeat myself when I say, again, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So let me read that again, 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who became of the seed of David according to the flesh, and was distinguished as the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me give you a couple of observations here. First of all, if you notice in the text of Scripture, it says uh, in verse number 3, uh, concerning his son, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Notice that. And then it says in verse 4, declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. What we have here is two words according to, which point us to two perspectives that you have to keep together when you look at the Lord Jesus Christ if you are to avoid missing out on a whole lot of his person and his work. First of all, there's the side according to the flesh. The second part is according to the spirit of holiness. Now, that's just a fancy way of saying this, the Holy Spirit, okay? Um, but according to the flesh, on the one hand, he's a descendant of David. This takes us back to the Old Testament to consider David's greater son, born of uh, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7, or Psalm 2, verse 7, when God says, you are my son, this day I have begotten you. It reminds us of the genealogies of Matthew and Luke. Matthew 1, Jesus was a son of who? Abraham and then a son of David. Luke chapter 3, he was also all the way through Mary's line, all the way back to, to David and all the way back to Adam. And then it ends that genealogy by saying the son of God. A very interesting a little portion of scripture. He came in the flesh, 1 John 4 tells us, and John chapter 1 and verse 14 says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what it means, Paul means when he says that 
I'm talking to you about the gospel which concerns his son who was born according to the flesh this way, who came into the flesh in this way. And then we have the second is according to the spirit. So you look, you have to look at Jesus from his human perspective or from the human perspective, if you will, as his humanity is true, but you also must look at him from another perspective. In Mark chapter 1, verse 1, it says, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Luke 1, 32 and 33, he is the Son of the Highest, seated upon David's throne, or will be seated there. John chapter 1 and verse 1, and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 20, verse 31, Jesus is the Christ. This is John's whole burden, that you would believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Son of God means that Jesus is the same essence as God. He is made of the same stuff as God, if you will. He is neither subordinate, nor has a beginning, nor is an offspring, nor is procreated. We understand that relationship by means of the analogy of human fathers and human sons. But that analogy breaks down uh, very easily when it comes to trying to express exactly how God the Father and God the Son are related in the Trinity. And let me just say, as I, as I reflected on this, I wanted to make sure that we emphasize this point that when we're talking about Jesus Christ, we have to keep both his humanity and his deity together. There are some who deny his deity. There are others who effectively deny his humanity. You can't have a Savior who dies if he's not human. You can't have a Savior who dies effectually if he's not divine because he doesn't have the infinite holiness and perfection that is needed to be called the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the perfect, spotless, blemishless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so Paul is very, in very compact language here, really takes the Gospels, Matthew, the human kingship of Christ, Mark, the fact that he's the son of God, Luke, that he's the son of the highest, that he's the servant of, of men, and Luke, that he's, he's uh, the God-man, and John, that he's deity. He takes all of those and wraps it up in this little one statement that you have here, according to the flesh, the man who is born of the seed of David, and according to the spirit, the son of God with power. Now, the translations here can be somewhat confusing, and I, I, I know you haven't spent as much time thinking about this as I have, but just think with me here now. Have your sharp thinking cap on. Uh, in the King James, it says that according to the flesh, he was made of the seed of David. Uh, the new King James uh, has, what does it have here? It says he was born of the seed of David. And those words have caused no end of confusion in Christendom and around all, that, all of that because people, well, he was made of the son of David, therefore he came into being. Or he was born, therefore it must have been he had a beginning. None of that is true. Uh, in fact, interestingly, the word here that is used concerning his son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David, that's not the common word for the word to be born. And so thus I've translated it that he became of the seed of David. He became that. That's the word. It's, it's, it's 
I won't give you the Greek, but it just means became, to be, to exist as, to come into that place. It's not to be born or procreated. He was not born like every other human being was born. Well, like Mary did give birth, and it was a birth like every other woman has given birth, but Jesus didn't come into humanity through the normal method of procreation because he already existed. And so he was adding humanity to himself via the virgin conception and birth, not like a normal a human who, who springs into existence at the moment of conception. Anyway, this is Paul's concise way of explaining how Jesus came to be a descendant of David as far as his humanity is concerned, that is, according to the flesh. Now, another thing I alluded to already, but I didn't bring out was if you look at your translation, mine has concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I bet yours, if you're carrying a New American Standard ESV or maybe NIV, doesn't say that, does it? It says concerning his son, and then it moves on to the rest of the verse. And what's happening is it puts Jesus Christ our Lord at the end of verse number four. Is that how you see yours? Yeah. So what's going on there? Well, the Greek text the manuscripts that are passed down to us actually have Jesus Christ our Lord at the end of verse 4. But for some reason, in some English translations, they've seen fit to take the word Son and Jesus Christ our Lord down here and just go eh, and move it right up here to the top. Why do they do that? Well, it's, they're trying to make it, the text clear, but I think it's just perfectly fine the way that it is. What Paul is doing is he's saying concerning his Son who was born of the seed of David, uh, who was uh, declared to be the Son of God with power. And then, you know, one of those long dashes, Jesus Christ our Lord is who I'm talking about, is what he's saying. So it's kind of like, translate it this way, his son, dash, all of the description, dash, Jesus Christ our Lord. All that stuff is smashed into the middle of this, of this statement about who Jesus is. This, this is what the gospel is all about. And Paul's trying to say, if you're talking about the gospel... You're talking about Jesus. You're talking about his son. You're talking about the one who became a man, a descendant of David. You're talking about the one who's the son of God in power. That's what's going on there in the text. So no big deal that some of the translators have moved it up. I think it almost gives it more of a pointedness, though, if you leave it in the order that it is. The other difficulty with this, these verses is this. Let's, let's look at them again. In verse 4, where it says, and declared to be the Son of God with power. Now, your translation probably has something different. Uh, let me see if I can hit it here. Uh, appointed, designated, determined, fixed, distinguished, marked off, demarcated. Um, I don't know, did I hit it? What do you have? What's that? Declared. You have declared, okay. Here's the difficulty with that uh, translation because some would say, okay, he was declared, meaning he was said to be the son. He was proclaimed to be the son of God with power. But as I understand it, there's two problems with that. First of all, the gospel is concerning his son, who was then said to be his son. That's a bit of a repetition that's unnecessary. And furthermore, the word that's used here, which we talked about with a couple of our friends here uh, in the church on Friday night, is horizo. 
It's not a word that means to say. It's not a word that means to proclaim or declare. Okay? So it's not declared in the sense of spoken. It's something else. And some have tried to translate it then, the son was appointed or determined to be the son of God in power. Now, this sounds suspicious because you think, well, was the son appointed to be the son at some point? Did he, was he adopted as the son somehow, you know, appointed into that role? And so the uh, ugly nuances of adoptionism come into the whole thing. No, that's not what's happening here. The nuance appointed, though, does work well if you take into account the rest of the verse, which we will in just a moment, okay? I don't have a big problem with that as long as we don't understand it to mean that Jesus somehow became the Son of God and, you know, at his baptism or at his death and resurrection or something like that. I'd rather use, though, the word the Son was marked off or distinguished as the Son of God. In power, this is probably the best way to handle it without any further, you know, kind of information. He was set apart from all others. Remember the verb I said was horizo. It's like the word from which we get the word horizon. When you see the horizon, there's a difference between two things. There's everything below the horizon, which would be like the land or the sea from your perspective, and then everything above would be the sky. There is a demarcation line between Jesus and everything else underneath him. That's what this word means. He's distinguished from everything else. And this avoids the idea of adoptionism because what happens is that he's distinguished into a position by the resurrection from the dead. Let's look at that for a moment. All of what we said is incomplete if we ignore this one phrase. Let me read it again. He was distinguished to be the Son of God. It doesn't say just Son of God, does it? What does it say? He's with power. That's what the distinguishment is, if I can use that non-kind of word, okay? The distinguishing is that he's the Son of God in or with power. You see, the virgin birth itself And all the miracles of Christ were enough to demarcate Jesus as something beyond mere humanity, even to set him off from the rest of humanity as the Son of God. I mean, he said, look, if you don't believe me, believe the works, right? You know, I am the Son of God. He said that. He indicated that. People understood that. Peter understood that. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. But the resurrection of Christ from the dead does something more even than that. It distinguishes him as the Son of God in power. And the way I put that in my notes is with a little dash between each word. The Son of God in power. That's what the resurrection does. By the way, the notes are available on the website if you want to look at them. I didn't print out copies for everybody this morning, but they are there. The resurrection was a demarcation point, not one which made the sun into the sun, but it set up the reality that Jesus is now the Son of God in power. He has the place of honor and authority that he did not have in his humiliation and servitude to the will of the Father on earth. God moved him from suffering to glory. From weakness to absolute power. 
from death to life, from humiliation to exaltation, from servant to king, from dying to reigning. This is what it means when Paul says that he was declared to be or he was distinguished as the Son of God in power. The power inherent in God raising him from the dead and the physical bodily resurrection resulting from that power make it clear that God indeed did in that act appoint or designate or demarcate or distinguish Christ as the Son of God in power. Not just as the Son of God, but as the Son of God in power. Matthew 28, 18 tells us, to him was given all, we could say power, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. He showed that power in Mark chapter 9 when he was transfigured before them. You remember, and his face was shining and his clothes were transformed and he was there with Moses and Elijah. We'll look at that tonight, Lord willing, in our evening service. He shared that power with his disciples so that they could work miracles as authenticating signs. He was declared to be the Son of God in power. Now people, here we come to the point now of this power idea. People sometimes worry that Jesus, that we say Jesus is not reigning at this moment as king. Now that's true in one sense and not true in another sense, okay? Jesus is reigning in his office as sovereign God. He has never abdicated that throne, if you will. In that, but it's, it's a behind-the-scenes kind of work that he's doing. As God often works, doesn't he, behind the scenes? You don't see his hand directly in everything, moving like in a miracle kind of fashion. It wouldn't be a miracle if God did it all the time. It would just be normal. But in another way, Jesus is not reigning in his office as a mediatorial king over the nation of Israel. You don't see him on a throne. You don't see him on the throne of David. You don't see him in Jerusalem. You don't see him reigning with the rod of iron right now, which he will do later. But even this does not mean that Jesus is absent in terms of the exercise of power right now throughout the world. In fact, he is, not just in his sovereignty. We understand that as part of the triune God. He's in charge of every atom in the universe. Nothing is outside of his watchful care and control and divine permission. But his exercise of power, although not in the mediatorial sense over the kingdom of Israel and over the kingdoms of the world, which will come when he returns, but he does reign and exercise power in and through the church and its ministry and its people. I want you to get that. By his resurrection, he has been set up, he's been distinguished as, uh, made clear to be the Son of God who is the head of the church. Not just the Savior of the body. He is the head of the body. Is this enough for you to acknowledge that he's exercising gospel power? What are displays of Jesus' power in this age? He's in power over the world through the Word of God and the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is doing His bidding. He is convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. 
The Son of God in power has done something in your life that demonstrates a great power. He's raised you from death to life. He's given you a new life. Is that enough power for you to say, hey, He's the Son of God in power? Absolutely. He's going to bring judgment on the earth. He's transforming lives one at a time, bringing them out of death and into life, out of sin into righteousness, out of the realm of Adam and into Christ. What kind of power does that take? He is the Son of God in power. The fact that God raised him from the dead shows that he set his seal upon him. He is that powerful right now. Even though he will display that power in more glorious ways in the future, isn't it glorious enough that there are millions of Christians in thousands of churches throughout the United States and the rest of the world today every hour of the day for all of Easter? resurrecting, the, uh, worshiping the resurrected Son of God who is in power. That is the kind of power that he's done to transform the world through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He is not presently hanging on a cross in weakness. He is not lifeless, hopeless in a cave. He did not swoon and, and then go and later die the death of a normal man. Instead, he died by crucifixion and he was raised by the powerful operation of God the Father. He is in power, in a new office, sitting at the right hand of God, awaiting for his enemies to be made into his footstool. Meanwhile, he is the head of the church and reigns as sovereign God and potentate over all things. Those people who are in Christ will likewise be raised up together with him, just as we were spiritually, and we have that living hope because Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He was crucified in weakness, but he lives by the power of God. He is not the Son of God in weakness. He is the Son of God in power. We are partners with him and have access to that power. We know he has it because he was raised from the dead directly to that place of power by the power of God that works in us who believe. With that power, we can give testimony to the resurrection of of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you can do that just like the disciples did back in Acts chapter 4 and verse 33. It says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. We can know the power of his resurrection like Paul asked for in Philippians chapter 3. Remember that? That's his highest goal, the prize that he's going for, to know the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings and all of those things, and we know that the second death has no power over those who believe because he is the Son of God, dash, in, dash, power. That's who he is. He's not, just, not even just the Son of God, as glorious as that truth is. He is the Son of God in power. Declared, designated, demarcated, distinguished to be so by the resurrection from the dead. That's Paul's statement in Romans 1, 3. And four. Wow, that kind of gets you a little bit excited, doesn't it? That we have a resurrected Lord, the Son of God in power. And I pray that you will have a great experience of that today as we worship together, as we fellowship around the tables, as you're with family. May God bless you and keep you, and may his resurrected face smile upon you and give you peace. Amen. Let us go and enjoy some breakfast together. And uh, 
Actually, let me just pray and offer thanks for that. Heavenly Father, we uh, are grateful for the message of the word today, for the songs, the testimonies and all. And I pray, Lord, that you will bless our time of fellowship together. Thank you for the provision at which table we can celebrate our resurrected Lord. May we do that as we talk of and think of him. In Jesus' name, amen.